Hello, everyone. Uh, I am uh, Claudia Morgan, the host of the Spiritually Inspired Podcast. And um, today, my guest is Dr. Kaylee P. Harris. Uh, Kaylee is a transpersonal climate psychologist, writer, and activist from Australia. She's an academic at the University of New England, an independent contractor for emergence benefactors, and a research assistant for the Juice Media. Her doctoral thesis investigated the relationships between spiritual emergence, psychosis, and personality. She's a founding board director and co-CEO of the Australian Center for Consciousness Studies, a member of the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, and an ambassador for the Wallow Books and Great Life Choice programs. Kaylee works experientially and her research is guided by personal experience. She's interested in investigating the psychology of climate change and the global crisis, human rewilding, and shamanic and indigenous perspectives toward healing and transformation. She also enjoys writing and presenting for the general population, including radio and podcast interviews for mainstream audiences. Uh, Kaylee, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thank you very much, Claudie, for inviting me. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very pleased to be here. So let's start with um, your trajectory. Um, of becoming a transpersonal climate psychologist, and you can also touch on any spiritual side of it. Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so my my foundation uh, with my academic work is in the field of transpersonal psychology. So I, um, I I did a psychology degree, and then I started to gravitate towards the transpersonal teachings, largely based upon my own experience of spiritual emergency and mental distress. And so trying to understand my own experience led me to discover the work of Stan and Christina Groff. Um, and um, so that was part of my own personal healing journey. And then I fell into a PhD program and had the opportunity then to discuss, uh, to explore that topic in a lot more detail um, in an academic way. And so I did. And then um, I finished my PhD in 2018. And I felt like I had had my head in books, um, well, in computer screens, <laughs> literally speaking, for um, the best part of seven years. And it was time to rejoin um, society. And so um, as I did that, as part of that process, I realised that I needed to really um, jump headfirst into the climate science because I had been um, realising how much my own spiritual experiences of awakening were really connected to the climate emergency and feelings of um, eco-anxiety and, and existential dread and distress and all of these new climate emotions that are coming up and um, that are having new words created for them. And so I, I did a bit of a deep dive into some of that climate science um, and the psychology around it. And I realised um, that, well, not only was it extremely distressing, but actually there was a strange aspect that was very healing to, to understand um, more clearly with a critical mind what is going on in the world and how that is affecting people on very deep and primal levels. And so I connected with some climate psychologists. This is kind of an emerging field, really, because it's emerging out of necessity because people are influenced um, in a negative way by what's happening ecologically. And so I connected with some, some climate psychologists and then I realised, well, there's actually kind of no one working in this space who has a transpersonal background. And so I kind of coined for myself this new term of transpersonal climate psychologist because why not? There doesn't seem to be anyone else working in this space and it seems like a space that needs to be worked in. And so... I, I guess I feel at this point in my life that the rest of my life needs to be dedicated to helping to resolve this crisis. And I hope to be able to bring some transpersonal perspectives into that because I do think that it helps to create a more complete picture. So I, that's a bit of a brief um, pathway of what led me here. Yeah, that's a noble cause, that's for sure. And uh, Australia is a land uh, loaded with... Um, climate, uh, visible climate uh, changes, and you had the, uh, the bush um, fires uh, last year, and um, you also you have a lot of um, 
coal mining in northwestern Australia, you know, that coal going to mainly to, to China. Um, and this type of um, business, let's say, of mining affects the indigenous uh, people. And I like to touch on um, what you recently said about uh, indigenous people being more vulnerable uh, to eco-anxiety and psychological um, distress. Can you please expand on that? Yes, um, absolutely. So I, I do just want to start by saying that um, I work with Indigenous Australians and so I don't like to think that I'm speaking, you know, for them. I, I'm speaking my own opinion and perceptions based upon conversations that I'm having with Indigenous Australians. So I just wanted to put that out there as a bit of a disclaimer, I suppose, because I'm not Indigenous and so I can't speak, you know, um, as an Indigenous Australian. I'm speaking as a white Australian um, and this is my perspective on the topic. Um, so, yes, um, as you said, <laughs> Australia does have a lot of um, coal mines um, where um, pretty much the worst in the world on the climate stage, um, which is very embarrassing as an Australian. Um, a lot of what happens is that um, mining companies go into sacred sites and they blow them up. And this is undertaken with uh, lack of transparency and lack of adequate engagement with Indigenous communities. Um, and that's very devastating and traumatic um, for Indigenous communities in particular because, you know, they have a deep and sacred connection to the land. And so when a sacred site gets blown up or when sacred birthing trees get removed, for example, so that a highway can be built, um, you know, 10 metres away to save people five minutes of time while they're travelling, um, it's, it's very devastating and it has very deep spiritual um, traumatic effects, um, not only on Indigenous people, but then also that filters out to, to the rest of us, um, to the rest of the community and the, and the greater population, because it's a trauma. So there is some emerging research that has specifically looked at um, some Indigenous populations and they've measured variables, including um, certain types of psychological distress. And so those sort of preliminary results did demonstrate that um, in this particular research study, um, which I can provide a link for you afterwards if you want to um, include that for the audience. Um, in this particular study on which I was not a researcher, but I've read the paper and engaged with uh, one of the researchers on it. Um, they did find that this particular Indigenous population uh, was experiencing higher levels of psychological distress directly in relation to the impacts of climate change. Um, and so, I mean, you know, like it's quite obvious that a lot of, um, for example, the low-lying Pacific Island nations, which are highly um, inhabited by Indigenous populations, they are at the forefront of what's happening with rising sea levels, for example. Um, they're also very vulnerable to extreme weather conditions, largely because they don't have sufficient infrastructure to protect against them. Um, so we've got the physical causes where we're actually seeing, you know, destruction of homelands. Um, but then there are also the deeper, yeah, psychological and spiritual um, aspects of the change in the sense that Indigenous cultures, generally speaking, have a higher level of connection, emotional and spiritual connection to the land um, and to our natural environment. And so any destruction that happens anywhere around the world is, is a deep trauma in that respect. And that's something that a lot of the rest of us or a lot of um, cultures that don't, you know, value that deep connection to nature don't experience to the same degree because there's that sense of disconnect. And so if something happens, you know, environmentally and, you, and you're not feeling connected to nature, then that's not going to have the same, um, I suppose, the same deep effect as it would on somebody or on a culture that does have that deeper connection to nature as part of their daily life, just as part of, you know, their, their being. So basically on, on every single level, Indigenous people are currently being affected um, in disproportionate levels to the climate emergency. Yeah, and, and still um, staying on this subject, um, I mean, the world uh, heard that uh, in Northwestern territories, <clears throat> the Indigenous are being rounded up right now for their own sake, in my opinion, at least, to be protected from a virus they don't need to be protected from and put into uh, interim camps. And I heard from two different the sources, one in Australia, one outside, that in fact, the real reason is 
because the indigenous people in Australia, their DNA is very pure, is pristine. It has ancient knowledge and the government somehow doesn't want that information to, to go out. They want to contain um, the tribes and these particular people um, and not let the information out. Did you hear anything related to this subject? Oh, this sounds very contentious and juicy, and I don't feel qualified to comment on this at this point. <laughs> okay. I, I, do, I do know that um, Indigenous Australians um, are have disproportionate health outcomes compared to non-Indigenous Australians. Um, I also um, would be willing to comment um, and say that um, there are a lot of conflicting viewpoints with regards to vaccination, not just for Indigenous but for non-Indigenous um, populations as well. And so um, I can't speak to that particular topic that you're talking about. Um, I would like to look into it a little bit more, actually, okay. and maybe we can have a conversation about it later down the track. It's very diplomatic. And because I like to be a contrarian most of my time or most of the time, uh, I will mention something uh, which came out of uh, one of your uh, presentations when you quoted um, World Health Organization who referred to the, the climate change. And again, it is not only my opinion, but let's talk about my opinion right now. I mean, I care about the environment. I write about this. I know we, we pollute and we destroy forests and whatever we put our hands on pretty much we destroy related to, to nature. But um, when such statement from World Health Organization regarding climate change as the greatest threat to global health, um, I have to, to think twice because they've been not an unbiased uh, organization. Uh, we saw how they handled the, the health crisis, the flip-flopping, and um, they say usually what the funders uh, want them to, to say. So do you think that they take the same approach when it comes to, to climate? Well, um, I don't disagree that there are potentially vested interests involved in um, some announcements that are made. Um, I, I do think that they're, that they're on the ball with this one, actually, because I do see climate change as being um, the greatest threat to overall health for all of us. Right. Well, I suppose in the climate context, um, I would suggest that they would probably have more pushback against comments like that rather than the opposite way around. So, um, so in this respect, um, yeah, I, I, I would. I think it's important to always have a critical mind and and to have a look at you know who funding bodies are and to also have a look at other research that you know is is saying similar things. And so um, in this particular case, I would agree with the assessment by the World Health Organization. Okay, because you know several months ago I posted um, a short video about the hypocrisy of the New Green Deal and what I had in mind was if they want us to switch completely to green technologies, which is solar, um, wind, and other similar technologies. They all, um, batteries, you know, batteries for Tesla cars and similar uh, cars, they all need rare metals. That means the drilling won't stop. That means the, yeah, maybe the coal drilling will stop, but anything else will keep continue and the power will be concentrated in, uh, in the hands of only few people who, who need these resources. Um, so still China will be a, a big player in the, in, in the world of mining for rare metals, US the same. So I don't see how much um, this transition to Green New Deal will, will change the, uh, or will lesser the, the, the pollution. What's your take on it? Oh, that's really interesting. I'd be interested to hear more about um, what you would see as a better alternative. At this point, I again, it's hard to... Oh, there are other alternatives. I, I mentioned free energy technologies, which were developed 100 years ago by uh, Nikola Tesla. And since then, there are other inventors which came up with new and similar technologies. But again, they are being suppressed by the governments. They don't want these technologies to, to come forward. There are uh, car engines which run on water 
and this it's been around for 20 30 years or more i know i i I saw videos of people running their cars on water. Why don't the, the big manu- car manufacturers want to implement these technologies? So this is the big shift, not just a you know, uh, easy transition or a delicate transition from coal and what we are doing these days to Green New Deal, again, which will concentrate the power in the hands of few, and they will have the, the reins of, of these technologies. So solutions, but we are abundant in solutions, but again, it's government suppression and money and interest which won't allow uh, these inventors to come forward because a lot of people died, a lot of them disappeared, a lot of um, laboratories were, were dismantled by, by government goons because of you know, stepping on other people's toes. Mm, so would you say then that it's less the concept of the Green New Deal that you take issue with, but more about some of the um, the nuances contained within? Well, I assume you're talking about the American version because there are different versions of the Green New Deal. I think they, they want to blanket the whole world with uh, <clears throat> this New Deal. Europe is talking about uh, one, and I think it's similar to what uh, US is, is talking about. Um, so because they all go to the same meetings. Um, but if the, polit- the political decision will want us to become greener and safer, that means implement all these technologies. You don't have to pay for them. That's the problem. No one will make money out of it. And that's the, the conundrum these big, uh, the politicians and the um, uh, business people don't want to hear. They want to make money all the time. Mm. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that we currently live within a capitalist system. And so, like, unless you want to go full anarchy, um, we kind of have to be working within the systems that exist. And I suppose, you know, dismantling them and creating um, new and better systems that can rise up, like the Phoenix rising archetype, um, as everything crumbles around us. So, I personally um, appreciate the general concept of the Green New Deal. Um, I, I have done some work with people who have helped to conceive of that, um, that actual concept. Um, and so I, I am in favour of the concept of basically an emergency response to climate change. But I definitely agree that, like, the nuances need to be thoroughly unpacked and um, and people need to be held accountable because what you say is correct, that there are existing technologies that have existed for, like, a very long time that have not ever seen the light of day because of vested interests in, you know, corporate, um, well, there's a lot of corporate psychopathy that exists around us. And so trying to break through that is going to be very, very difficult. And so... I think the best that we can do, um, my personal opinion, is not on the fa- on the side of anarchy um, I, because I don't think that's constructive. I think what we want to be doing is forming collaborations um, and and coming up with you know what we believe to be the most appropriate technologies to incorporate into such a deal, um, and then at the same time you know trying to dismantle those. Um, uh, elements of the of the deals that you know that we still see as being corrupt, and so I mean, the Green New Deal in Australia, for example, that is being drafted by the Australian Greens Party, um, especially the Tasmanian version of the Green New Deal. Well, the people, the, the legislators that are drafting that currently are actually very um, amenable to being in discussions with climate psychologists, um, such as myself and other colleagues. We've had discussions around the incorporation of Indigenous practices within the Tasmanian version of the Green New Deal. Um, and so talks like this are very encouraging, I think. And so not every Green New Deal looks the same. Um, they're all very fluid. Those that are here in Australia in particular are very fluid. And those that are drafting it are um, essentially activists and willing to engage. And so um, I don't want to put a blanket kind of um you know, like statement across, oh, no, Green New Deal, bad, because there are things in it that I don't agree with. No, not at all. I think Green New Deal concept, potentially good, and let's work with those who are drafting it to try and make sure that it's as good as it can be. Yes, and imagine the the, the world is crisscrossed by huge power corridors, power line corridors. If we use free technology, we can reuse the, the iron, we can reuse the land, to create gardens, to create parks. 
to enrich our lives, not get those bad frequencies from the power lines and get sick and go to the hospital and get into the rigmarole of the health system. There are so many benefits by implementing these technologies. And they can be implemented very, very soon because there are prototypes, working prototypes all over the world. And if you um, watch um, uh, Thrive 2 by uh, Foster Gamble, um, you'll see there are working prototypes, even in Africa, but the governments don't want to implement them again. Mm. And, and so I, I, what, what people need to be doing, people who, um, you know, are familiar with this technology, people who are working with it, need to be lobbying as much as they can and, and providing educational material to those who will listen. One of the Indigenous elders that I work with has given me a wonderful piece of advice. He tells me, work with the people who get back to you. So, I mean, I think that that's a very um, valuable piece of wisdom that I have taken into my work. And so I reach out to lots and lots and lots of people and then I work with the ones that get back to me. And sometimes initially that might seem like, oh, but these aren't the ones that will create change, but they're the ones getting back to me and that's what I have to work with. And, you know, as things unfold, you don't know. You don't know what could emerge from that. So I think that, you know, if people want to see things, if a Green New Deal is where we're headed, if people want to see specific things in the Green New Deal, then put together information, educational material, start contacting people, and then work with the ones that get back to you. Yeah. Kylie, are you aware that we are approaching a mini, mini ice age? A mini ice age? Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, look, I, I know that there are lots of terrifying ecological things happening. Yes. <laughs> because every 12,000 years, Earth um, had an ice age, mini ice age. And if you listen to um, Greg Braden, who uh, looked deeply into um, Antarctica's ice samples, they can see certain uh, metals, which you don't find them here on Earth, rare metals, and they appear at layers of separated 12,000 years. So again, in my opinion, based on research I've done, people I listen to, um, even if we stop um, any type of pollution tomorrow, we are still going through certain um, natural events um, sooner rather than later, just because the universe, just because the what's going on outside of the Earth's atmosphere, electromagnetic fields, um, you know, different type of um, wind turbulence, so that it will happen, either if we want or not, and there is nothing we can do. Okay. Yeah, well, I, look, I'm definitely aware of the fact that we have tipped environmental tipping points or crossed environmental tipping points, which means exactly what you said, that even if we stop polluting um, and start doing everything perfectly um, tomorrow, then there's still going to be some catastrophic change that we're going to have to deal with. Um, yes, I suppose um, when I try to bring in the transpersonal perspective into that, because that's obviously a terrifying concept, you know, where I think that COVID has brought about... Um, well, probably not even the beginning, but certainly um, a more obvious beginning to societal collapse. So that's not a future event anymore. That is here. We are living in societal collapse right now. Um, speaking with, when we speak and listen to climate scientists, they tell us that, yes, we have crossed environmental tipping points. So no matter what we do now, there are going to be some environmental consequences that we're going to have to um, figure out how to navigate. Um, so... Yeah, bringing in the transpersonal perspective. Um, well, I mean, also just bringing in a social perspective, really. Um, I think that, you know, when we look at, at trying to achieve balance and equilibrium, um, it's important to consider that there are also social tipping points that can be achieved. Um, and, and perhaps these are happening concurrently with the environmental tipping points. I personally believe that that is what's happening. Um, and, I mean, this is this is me being purely transpersonal, not academic. I woke up recently with a, a, what felt like a, a revelatory um, morning thought that we have crossed a social tipping point. And I felt very excited um, and um, 
quite elated when I when I had that sensation. That's just you know an intuitive sense that I woke up with that oh we've crossed a social tipping point. Um, and so what I feel needs to happen is that these social tipping points need to be crossed as a counter to the environmental tipping points. And there does need to be a level of acceptance that, um, again, as we've said, no matter what happens now, there are going to be some devastating environmental impacts that we are going to have to live with. But I think that the best way that we can navigate that with um, innovative solutions and, you know, creative ways of adapting is to cross these social tipping points as well. And these could be conceived of as spiritual tipping points as well in the sense that, you know, particularly when we when we look at the collective compared to the individual experience, when a person undergoes an awakening experience, especially if that has been traumatic, um, what, what happens for them is that they experience an individual cognitive paradigm shift. And so that's really what we need to be striving for collectively. We're striving for a collective paradigm shift. And so if that can happen, you know, um, within the cognitive minds of individuals, the more individuals that experience this cognitive paradigm shift, then the more that we see that on the collective level. And I think that that's when we start to cross tipping points that can be used as counter levers to the environmental tipping points. And I think that it's the acceleration of the environmental tipping points that is bringing about these collective paradigm shifts as well, because not only are people becoming more engaged in environmental issues because they're right in our faces now. I mean, here in Australia, for example, we have catastrophic bush catastrophic bushfires um, where we're seeing like quite dramatic um, changes to our seasons. I mean, it's, it's December here, it's summer, and I've had my heater on every day. And yes, I'm in Tasmania. It is colder than the mainland, but the locals are telling me, yeah, this isn't normal. We don't usually have, you know, like our winter woolies on in summer. That's it's not normal. So, you know, we we are seeing um, quite drastic environmental changes. And what that does is that it makes people become more aware more aware of things going on environmentally. And then that starts to, you know, facilitate conversations and questions and, and higher levels of critical thinking. And then, you know, people start connecting with each other over, for example, shared climate distress, um, just a, a greater engagement in politics and um, world issues. And so people, I think what I'm witnessing around me is that people are becoming more engaged and this is good, this is what we want. And, yes, there's a lot of distress that goes along with that, but if we can try to offer these narratives around um, the concept of crossing social and psychological and spiritual tipping points that can help to counter the environmental tipping points and offer this as, well, I'm not, I don't want to say a solution because the fact is we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a dooms person I am a prepper <laughs> because I think preparing is sensible um, but you know I don't subscribe to oh we're all doomed and there's nothing we can do we're all gonna die no I don't I'm not gonna say that because I don't know maybe that will happen but I don't know the climate scientists don't know either the research doesn't support that what the research supports is that we have to act now like yesterday but now and so the more people that wake up to that message, that's our best chance, basically. Our best chance is to cross as many of the tipping points that will help to counteract the environmental tipping points as we possibly can. So my goal right now is to just try to facilitate that. And then let's just see what happens. Because I also know from a spiritual transpersonal perspective that before an individual has undergone that cognitive paradigm shift, they can't actually conceive of what that is going to be like. I mean, you know, before I had um, awakening experiences, I, I had an idea of what life was about and, and the way my brain worked. And then after my experiences and undergoing that cognitive paradigm shift within myself, I was transformed. I, I, I can look back on my prior self and it's still me, but 
I'm transformed in a way that I could not have conceived of beforehand. And so, you know, I suppose the message in that, when we adapt that to a collective perspective, is that we don't know what we could be capable of as a species until we've undergone this paradigm shift. So let's just get that underway already so that then we can we can see what we can actually achieve because what I do know is that when we work together collaboratively, we can achieve a lot more than what we can achieve individually. That's for sure. Thank you. And it's very interesting uh, point of view with uh, the uh, social and the spiritual uh, tipping point. And uh, I think um, in the last year and a half, a lot of people went through these uh, tipping points, either socially or spiritually. And, uh, and socially, unfortunately, from again, from my perspective, uh, instead of um, getting together and getting closer, um, it was that uh, feeling of um, separation was perpetuated uh, because certain uh, entities wanted us to be separated, wanted us to, to think at uh, the neighbor as um, not the neighbor anymore and not uh, a friend but the potential, um, um, you know, enemy. Um, and we saw this uh, type of approach in communities. We saw it in, in families, within families. And I personally know <clears throat> families which, which have been divided, but uh, also those who made the tipping, the social tipping point to understand that we are one also went through the spiritual tipping point and spent more time meditating, introspecting, um, even had spiritual uh, transformations like the one you, you mentioned that you had. So somehow um, this whole um, period of, of COVID um, separated people, but at the same time made them understand themselves much better, what they are capable of, what they can achieve uh, on their own, but also with um, friends in a smaller community. So this will lead me into, into the next question about um, you know, rituals and initiation practices so, so common into the, in, the, in the indigenous uh, environment. Um, I mean, the modern society stigmatizes such customs and colonization all over the world did the same. Um, why do you think this fear is embedded into our upbringing and do you think that embracing this type of uh, rituals will make us understand ourselves much better? Yes, good question. Um, yes, I do think that ritual is very important. I think that it serves a, a psychological and a spiritual function um, that really helps to shift someone from one stage into another. So from, say, for example, from a developmental stage into another and so, you know, we have certain rituals for children, for example, we have, you know, like a graduation ceremony, for example, when a child finishes one level of school, my son is about to finish kinder, for example, and he'll have like, you know, they'll have, you know, a little kind of ceremony, you finish kinder, now you're about to transition into the next, you know, year of schooling. Um, these help to create psychological um, passageways, pathways for people. Um, which then, you know, helps them to transition from one stage into another. And so I think that, I think that largely, um, you know, colonisation has wiped out a lot of these types of social rituals that would have occurred in um, Indigenous cultures. And that's largely been because that's what colonisation does. Colonisation is fear-based. It's fear-based, like, you know, the colonising um, culture comes in and, and, and wants to, take over and so they don't want any retention of what was there before because they're afraid that if too much of that is retained then the culture that has just been dominated and colonized will still retain too much power and so you know the colonizing mindset is to stamp out as much of that as possible um, but unfortunately I think what has largely happened is that ritual and and symbolism was stamped out but then there wasn't really anything sufficient that took its place um, and so what took its place instead was corporate psychopathy. And so, I mean, that in itself is psychologically damaging enough. Um, but when you couple that with, yeah, a lack of um, ritual and ceremony in daily life, people are lost. People are disconnected. 
they're they're stuck in a rat race. They're stuck in a in a daily grind matrix that's designed to make the richest people in the world even richer. Um, and this is how we've been culturally conditioned. Um, and so that's that's part of what contributes to a collective awakening process is because a large amount of um, the world is born into a psychopathic system. And so, you know, that's normal for people when you're born into a system like that, that's normal. And so you go along, you grow up in that, you, you, you try to be as happy as you can, but then there are nagging feelings in the back of your mind for people who are even remotely sensitive that makes you question. And there's a high degree of cognitive dissonance when you are born into an inherently problematic, toxic, psychopathic system that, you know, that didn't exist for Indigenous people because they were living within a system that had been, that had evolved over tens of thousands of years that was, um, you know, I'm not going to say perfect, but a healthy symbiotic system that had natural rites of passage. And so the system that we are, the Western system that we are born into these days does not have that. It's an unhealthy system that is void of, of ritual and symbolism that helps people transition. And so people are people are born into a sick system. How do you stay healthy within that unless you undergo some kind of awakening experience that catapults you out of it or at least transitions you out of it? Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess that's why largely we, we tend to look at these awakening experiences as a rite of passage you know, as one of these um, unstructured, <laughs> um, ritualized kind of experiences um, that in different cultures would be treated differently um, when it happens in a Western culture. Thankfully, the community is growing so that people do have a support system that can help. But a lot of people still have these experiences on their own within a sick system. Uh, which is very destabilizing. Um, and so, yes, I am a, a big proponent of bringing back formalized ritual, even if that is just within your own community. Like it doesn't have to be something that is a blanket for everyone. But I personally do find ritual and ceremony to be very healing and very important, especially when you're going through some kind of a life stage. Um, my family has just relocated to a different state, for example. And so that is a life transition for us. And so I've been just doing, you know, little things that I can to help my son with that transition. Um, you know, we might light a candle and talk about what we're grateful for, for example. It's not anything that is um, like fully structured. It's just something that I intuitively think um, this might be helpful in helping my son understand that, you know, we've left an old life behind and we're now starting a new one. And this is just a little bit of ritual that we're undertaking to kind of formalise that. Um, and that feels healthier for me than just, oh, I'm pulling you out of your old life, sticking you in another one, just get on with it, just get on with it, <laughs> which is what largely our capitalist society is all about. And COVID has shown that as well. You know, um, there are, have been a lot of humanitarian approaches proposed that could be taken, but no, it's been we want business as usual because it's all about the economy. Um, and so COVID could be viewed as a as a rite of passage for us. Um, unfortunately, we seem to be failing. Yes. Do you have any visibility in um, into the Aboriginal um, um, environment and make a uh, come up with a conclusion that their rituals are shrinking or their out outreach, the outreach of their rituals are shrinking or are they being maintained by, by the next generation? Well, that is a good question. Um, what I would say is that they haven't been lost, but their practice is not as widespread as it would have been. So, um, there, you know, there are people who are afraid that, um, that certain knowledge and um, and wisdom and and practices have been lost and that they've just gone forever. Um, I've spoken to people who have suggested that they they're not lost, but that um, I suppose it's harder to maintain them and more care needs to be taken to preserve what does still exist because not as many people have the knowledge as. Um, as they did before, you know, whereas it, it was um, 
before colonization when the knowledge was just there around um it's not like that anymore it's not widespread there are a lot of young particularly young indigenous australians who are very disconnected from their culture um some might have grown up in you know an, an urban setting and they might not undertake the same types of traditional practices and rituals that they used to. Um, and so that's obviously very different to how things would have been prior to colonisation when it was um, still when ritual um, and traditional practices were, were normal. They're not, you know, in, in non-Indigenous cultures in Australia, those things are not normal anymore because they've been largely stamped out. So I would say that the knowledge has not been lost, but that it there does need to be greater care taken to preserve the knowledge and to, um, to continue to transmit that knowledge so that more and more people can reconnect with it. And so the first priority would be to reconnect Indigenous Australians with their own heritage and with that knowledge. Um, and then through that process, my hope would be that non-Indigenous Australians can also learn that knowledge and that can be part of reconciliation efforts and decolonization efforts so that once again we can bring back that knowledge to a higher degree so that there is less chance of it being lost if more people know about it. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you are aware that um, a lot of um, white people go to South America these days, Peru, Ecuador, Guatemala, and the local shamans are so willing to share the information they have about nature, about plant medicine. And um, people going there from US, Canada, you know, Europe, they, some of them become uh, curanderos. Um, they become the apprentice of the shaman. And they spend many years being uh, fascinated by the ritual, the ceremonies, and the connection um, the locals have with, uh, with Mother Nature. And something like this should happen in Australia as well. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, there's contention around these sorts of practices, I suppose, um, in terms of whether they get used appropriately because something that would need to be considered, for example, um, is, well, the whole concept of spiritual emergency um, came about largely because practices were entering into uh, Western culture from either Eastern cultures or tribal shamanic type cultures um, that then were not sufficiently translated and supported for people. So, you know, for example, if somebody who fancies themselves as a bit of a spiritual seeker goes to Peru, does a vision quest and then thinks they're a shaman and then comes back home and says, oh, hey, I learned this in Peru, I can teach you but, you know, <laughs> kind of doing a hack job of it, well, that's problematic. <laughs> and so um, I'm not necessarily in favour of just um, like carte blanche, yeah, yeah, let's just throw traditional practices out there for everyone to do um, because that's not responsible, you know. Um, there needs to be a responsible way of um, knowledge transmission occurring. And so um, I would suggest that people you know who would yeah. like to engage in something like this um need to do it with caution and with appropriate support and appropriate training and sometimes that training can last a lifetime i mean i i will never yeah. claim to be an expert in indigenous australian practices firstly i'm not indigenous and so i don't think i could ever claim that kind of um status but also uh, you know given that we're talking about knowledge that has been um well, you know, lost to a, to a large degree in terms of general knowledge um, of certain practices, I think that it's probably a lifetime journey of learning about said practices. And so anyone who is running around claiming to be, you know, um, an expert in something that they might have just gone and done like a seven-day retreat in, well, I would be more inclined to call them a charlatan than a shaman. Um, yes, so, I agree. I agree. To totally agree. And the, the cases or the instances I mentioned is these guys really spend years in the jungle with the shaman uh, mm -hmm. until they become um, proficient enough or the shaman gave um, their blessings that they, yes, 
you can do this type of work on your own or you can still need someone else to help you. <clears throat> but again, yes, I totally agree that there is, has to be some responsibility. Otherwise, you are just a charlatan. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do agree with you that it, um, it would be nice and, and I think helpful for um, the planet and humankind for us to be um, seeing a larger level of engagement with um, Indigenous peoples and traditional practices and, uh, you know, ritualistic ceremony and things like that, as long as it is being undertaken responsibly and, and also as long as it's being undertaken in collaboration with those who hold the knowledge. So I would not be a fan of seeing um, a non-Indigenous person engaging for a while and then kind of running off and doing their own thing. I think it needs to be continued collaboration. I would always be, I personally will always be consulting with the Indigenous Australians that I work with to always make sure that I'm not muddying the knowledge that is being given to me and that it's always being translated in a culturally appropriate way. Um, and so, and so, yes, I, I do agree that I would like to see um, more of this occurring, but as long as it's occurring responsibly. <laughs> yes, again, totally agree. And a question which I ask every single uh, Australian guest I have on this show, have you visited Uluru and what did you feel? Oh, this is a really interesting question for you to ask me. Um, Yes, I have visited Uluru and I, and I have some very mixed feelings, actually. Um, so I, I'd like to tell this story. Um, I, I visited Uluru um, as part of a school um, excursion when I was 15 years old. So, gosh, what you would make it. That would have been back in the mid-90s. Um, this was when Uluru was open to the public. And so we climbed it because that's what everybody did. And, um, and, you know, so during that time, um, going to Central Australia, looking at Uluru, like, oh, my God, it is absolutely amazing. I did not have the appreciation for it as a 15-year-old that I would have now as a 42-year-old. And so I, I wish that I could relive that experience. But um, back at that time in my life, it was still amazingly impressive. Um, climbing to the top was an achievement. However... <laughs> Now that represents a deep trauma for me because now um, as an adult I understand um, what has happened here in Australia is that you can no longer climb Uluru because it has been the Indigenous people of the area have got, had to undergo uh, like a very, very long and traumatic process of trying to help the general Australian public understand that, hey, this is a sacred space for Indigenous people. We don't want you trampling all over it. And so knowing that I was one of those people that trampled all over it when I was a child is actually deeply traumatic for me now. And so maybe that is part of what feeds into, you know, my work of wanting to um, help promote reconciliation and healing um, is, is having these types of traumatic experiences of knowing that I've contributed to the problem. I walked on this sacred place in Australia that I now realise is not a good thing to do. And so in healing my own trauma around that, um, I think that's largely what drives my activism work of wanting to try to bring such um, issues of racial justice into the public awareness. Um, and so, you know, I remember, and again, it's just so embarrassing. I can remember when we were coming up to the date that Uluru was going to be closing its doors to the general public. Um, there was an influx, an influx of people. Oh, I have to get in there before I'm not allowed to climb it anymore. Um, how about the fact that the reason it's being closed is because you've already been told you're not supposed to climb it? Is that not enough? <laughs> but no, it's not enough for the majority of people. They have to just get in there and squeeze as much out of the sauce bottle as they can before, you know, before the closing date of being able to trample on this sacred site. So those kinds of things infuriate me <laughs> and yes, drive and, my activism. <laughs> and then you say it's close. Yes, you cannot climb um, the rock, but you can still walk the site, correct? Yes, you can still, um, you can still go to the site. Um, you can walk around. Um, well, I suppose, you know, you can do what has now been determined to be culturally appropriate and sensitive. Um, but I think it would still be, a good idea to engage with local Indigenous groups around 
what are you comfortable with us doing? Oh, okay, then that's what I'll do. And I won't do anything more than that if you're not comfortable with it. <laughs> but the Australian mentality is still very much um, not in that space yet. <laughs> yes, and I think an, an offering will be uh, very appropriate and they will be pleased with uh, anyone um, asking for this type of, uh, of um, custom to perform that type of offering there. That I think will be appreciated. Yes, I think I think it's always a good idea to um you know to ask permission for things and and to ask um you know what what a certain culture is happy with is comfortable with and if the answer is not what you want it to be then you need to accept that. <laughs> yes. If you ask, can I climb Uluru, and you get told no, then you need to respect that. Even if you want to go and climb it, the answer is no. <laughs> Yeah, just use a drone and get the images from from the top, and that's it. Yeah, well, you know, just do what just do what the local traditional custodians are telling you they're comfortable with, and that's it. <laughs> yes, you mentioned that um, you recently moved to Tasmania and uh, you purchased a um, plot of land there. What uh, are your plans with uh, with that location? Yes, well, um, there are several sets of plans. Um, there are personal plans and there are professional plans. Um, so I would love to take the opportunity to talk to you about um, a research project that I am coordinating that will be piloted on the land. Um, and so this kind of unfolded through a series of synchronistic events, which seems to be the story of my life. Um, so what happened was that um, my, fa my family are Melbourne blow-ins, <laughs> as we are colloquially known as, um, mainlanders who have come in and, and purchased land during COVID because, um, you know, we've, um, we've had that experience of COVID being a catalyst for something that we had been wanting to do for years and, and, and took the opportunity then to do that. Um, so anyway, I... I was working already with some Indigenous Australians and also with some, um, some other environmental activists and we were working in separate but related spaces. So I was um, doing some research into the practice of cultural burning, which is land management using fire um, techniques. It's a traditional practice that was undertaken in Australia prior to colonisation and um, consequently there are no stories of wildfire prior to colonisation and this was largely because as a general traditional practice, um, Indigenous Australians would undertake cultural burning, which was burning patches of land in a mosaic-like fashion as a maintenance technique, basically. So I was doing some research in that space. And then one of my other um, climate psychologist colleagues was doing some research into watershed restoration, which is um, caring for the waterways using this particular organisation uses both traditional and non-traditional non techniques to basically um, repair the waterways to undo the damage that colonisation has, um, has created, whereby we've created all of these waterways that allow the water to just run off the land and into the ocean. And so that largely contributes to the land becoming dried out and drought-stricken, which then has the flow-on effect of exacerbating wildfires. So we kind of got together this one day and had this conversation where she was working with water, I was working with fire, and we said, oh, hey, has anyone kind of like done a project where they put these things together? And to the best of our knowledge, they haven't. And so we said, oh, let's do that. <laughs> let's bring together the people that we're working with um, and find out if they're interested in, in doing, you know, like a large-scale project of looking at um, caring for land and caring for water using traditional practices. Um, and then as a psychologist, um, I am particularly interested in looking at that as a psychological intervention. So here in Australia, um, the land is, is generally referred to as country um, by Indigenous Australians. They call it caring for country is, is what the term used for the undertaking of traditional practices to maintain the land. So the basic kind of premise of the project is healing country, healing people. So the idea is that we get volunteer participants to come onto the property. So this property that I now legally own, which will be um, the pilot study, basically. Um, we bring people on there as participants to um, engage in 
these two different types of traditional practice of caring for country. And then we assessed certain psychological variables, including climate emotions like eco-anxiety um, and solastalgia, which is a climate emotion that has been coined by a fellow Australian called Glenn Albrecht. And it refers to the sense of despair that you feel when your home environment is changing. So as opposed to nostalgia, which is where you move away and then you feel homesick, Solastalgia is like, well, I'm feeling homesick, but I'm still at home. And it's because everything around me is changing. So a lot of people are experiencing this. Um, and so we'll be looking at that variable. And then also just some standard psychological variables like depression, anxiety, and PTSD, um, as well as spiritual crisis. And so these are all emotions and um, experiences that we believe are largely associated with the climate emergency. And so what we're basically hypothesizing is that as people engage in these caring for country practices, then their psychological and spiritual health will improve as consequence. So that's kind of the basic premise behind the project that will be undertaken on the land. Um, and then from a more personal perspective, um, this land, um, it, it already is so um, just personally significant to me. Not only did it provide an anchor for my family during COVID, um, when, we, when we were finally able to see the land for the first time, it was like walking into a, just a magical wonderland. It's like it's paradise. And so, you know, we, my husband and I are both creative and this is um, a, a wonderful creative outlet for us to basically um, build and and create a magical fairy tale garden <laughs> and to be um basically like we have so much fun watching um watching youtube videos about tiny houses and hobbit houses and castles and <laughs> i think this is going to be a lifelong project now of basically throwing all of our kind of childhood imaginary um you know all the things that made us happy in childhood and throughout our lives we're going to be kind of putting all of that together now in whatever we end up creating on this um piece of land <laughs> yeah wonderful projects i mean good luck with with both of them and i know you guys will be be happy there because you're in in nature so you can feel bad in, in nature, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Kaylee, we're approaching the end of the, the interview. Any final thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, I guess the only thing really, um, I mean, there's always so much to say on these topics, but um, another thing I suppose to add is that this, this personal experience to me right now is very much a personal rewilding experience. I've been a city girl for my whole life, and now I'm sitting here going, why? Why did it take me 42 years to get out of the city? <laughs> okay, a global pandemic was a very good catalyst, but why did it not take me longer to reconnect with nature? And so, um, you know, all I have to do now is walk outside and I'm in nature and it's so incredibly healing. Um, I mean, I, can't, I, I knew on an academic level that connecting with nature is beneficial for, you know, people in mental distress, but why was I not doing this more on a practical level? So th this whole experience of, of just really unplugging from the city and plugging into nature is, um, is just incredibly healing. It's, it really is creating that kind of paradigm shift for me that I described earlier. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've undergone sort of various, um, I suppose, degrees of that throughout my various crisis and awakening experiences, but this... Um, like really just plugging into nature right now is the most healing thing that I have ever done. And so for anyone who is experiencing either spiritual crisis or just general mental distress and particularly climate emotions and distress around climate change, just go and connect with nature. Like I look outside now and the trees are talking to me and I'm having all kinds of transpersonal experiences where it's not just clouds that morph into shapes, it's trees and it's just nature and it's speaking to me. And so I really just can't stress enough how the importance of reconnecting with nature and whether that is a drastic rewilding experience like what I'm fortunate enough to be able to undertake or whether it's just having a house plant and really trying to be mindful with it and, and just engaging in nature in whatever way possible. I really think that this is what is going to facilitate the um, collective tipping points that we need right now. So any way that you can connect with nature, even I, I also just found watching 
YouTube videos of people doing cultural burning, for example, was extremely healing for me. So any kind of reconnection with nature that people can do right now, um, I would strongly encourage that. So I'll, I'll leave that as my final message. Okay, thank you very much. All the best uh, to you and your family on the, uh, on the new adventure. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. And yes, thank you for the work that you do. And um, to my uh, viewers, thank you for watching. Share it, like it, um, support me on uh, patreon.com slash Claudio Morgan. Get a free copy of my book when you visit my website. And until next time, love and gratitude.